Welcome to Expert Instruction, our PBI SAPS Teach by Design podcast. Can we just take a quick collective breath? Because you guys, we did it. We made it to October. It happened. I know what it took me to get to here to this point today, and I see all of the work that you all are doing to support each other over the course of the beginning of this year. The way you continue to show up for your students, develop your lesson plans, check in on families, all while managing your own space, finding time to shower, to eat something besides chocolate during the day. It's honestly, it's Herculean. And I just wanted to say that I think you're all doing such a great job and we're all so grateful for it. So we've been at this distance learning thing now for, oh, a few weeks, I guess. Distance learning, hybrid learning, socially distanced learning. And the longer we do this, the more data we collect and we start to see trends and patterns emerge through this process. Recently, we started seeing a growing number of reports of students who were being excluded from their online instruction. They were mostly excluded for some low level behaviors that were happening or just some simple misunderstandings. We've explored the negative impact that suspensions can have on student academic outcomes in our Teach by Design blog space. We've even explored how some basic classroom management practices can increase your students' engagement and actually decrease the likelihood of some misbehaviors happening during your lessons. But something that we wanted to talk more and more about recently um, is the, our restorative practices as alternatives to exclusionary discipline. And we thought that this podcast, this platform would be a great place to get into it. So here we are. Today, we have our biggest group of experts yet. It's exciting, it's also a little daunting. <laughs> I'm joined today uh, by Dr. Rhonda Neese. Rhonda is a friend and a colleague of mine here at the University of Oregon. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Special Education and Clinical Sciences. And she's also the principal investigator of a research project called ISLA, which is an instructional alternative to exclusionary discipline practices. We also have Keith Hickman, who is the Executive Director of Collective Impact at the IIRP Graduate School. He partners with districts around the country to provide training, coaching, resources for implementing restorative practices within their context. His work is collaborative, it's rooted in partnership, and all in an effort to generate collective impact. And finally, we have Sandra Hensel and Naomi Brahim. And they're both here with us today from Jefferson County Public Schools in Louisville, Kentucky. Sandra's the district's behavior support systems coordinator and Naomi is the district multi-tiered systems of support department lead. And together they lead the district's efforts to integrate restorative practices within their PBIS framework. Thanks for joining me, you guys. Thanks for everyone being here, all of us in this virtual platform. I really appreciate it. Um, so I thought I'd just kind of get us started. We're talking about restorative practices and you all are really experts in, in doing this work. So for you all, what, what defines a restorative practice as an alternative to exclusionary discipline? Well, I'll start uh, with some working definitions and, and concepts yeah. that, that we can uh, move forward with. Uh, First, let's talk about restorative practices as an emergent science. Uh, and when we talk about an emergent science, we're talking about uh, building relationships uh, in an effort to build community. 
Um, it's proactive and responsive, but on the proactive side, we're talking about constructs that lend itself uh, to relational theory, social science, um, as a way to actually repair and respond to harm when done in a community setting. Um, it's participatory uh, and it involves uh, a whole school approach uh, in terms of improving relationships between staff, students, and their families. Uh, so just, a, just in a nutshell, it is the science of relationships uh, in an effort to build community. Yeah. And I think right now, too, when we're thinking about, when I think about students and um, being in this period of time and doing school either remotely or in a hybrid model, like building these relationships feels incredibly important. Um, and trying to figure out ways to do that over our virtual platforms feels like a task. It's something that, that we should be talking about. Um, so I appreciate that as a working definition. Do any of you all have other, other ways that you relate to this work as um, like how, how restorative practices work for you better than exclusionary practices? Like why are we doing this? So I struggle a little bit um, sometimes with that, the whole language of restorative practices as an alternative to suspension, just because I don't, I, I think that almost makes it a false polarity. Mm. Uh, and, and we can have suspensions that actually are restorative. You can do ah. suspensions in a restorative way um, through re-engagement and things like that. Um, but at the same time, it also assumes that restorative practices are about when harm has already happened and that responsive piece and restorative practices, the way we do it, we really wanna try and, and emphasize and focus on restorative practices as a proactive piece. And so that it's leading up to a, a decrease in suspendable offenses. So we aren't even getting to the point where we would have exclusionary discipline enacted because we're using restorative practices to build that culture, to build those relationships so that we see the behaviors decrease and we don't even get to that point. I think that there was, um, there was an email that, that, I think you, in your email, the way that you described it as there being sort of a continuum of support that's built in, right? That, that it's not just, you know, everything is okay or we're suspending kids or even that, that restorative practices would end up sort of on this other side of the spectrum closer towards suspension, that there can be this continuum of support that's offered um, throughout the way and, all, and some of these practices can be restorative too. Um, can you talk a little bit, maybe um, Naomi and Sandra, could you talk a little bit about some of those practices that you were doing in person in your district that would be considered a restorative practice? Well, I do want to piggyback on what Sandra said. Yeah. I think, I think when you suspend, that is exclusionary. But how you bring the person back can bring that restorative element in. We don't want to suspend. You know, ultimately, we know that when kids are suspended and are not in instruction, they're losing out, for the mm -hmm. lack of a better way to say that. Um, but our goal is really how do we make sure that those relationships are built, 
not just with um, students and teachers, but between teachers, between staff and between community, because it takes the whole school community to really build that restorative element. And I think so many times people just focus on the student teacher relationship, but you have to have relationships with um, with the school bus drivers. You have to have relationships with um, within schools between staff, the clerical staff, the, um, you know, the custodial staff, because if that's not restorative, then you can't call yourself a restorative community. And so when you think about, so one of the things that we're doing um, is a re-engagement project. So we have um, several alternative schools too. Um, and our goal is after students have been suspended to um, an alternative school, that we find a process to re-engage those students back so that they be, don't become, our recidivism rate is lowered. Um, and that's, that's a new position that we've created. We have mental health practitioners that are transitioning students back and that's being um, done at the district level. And Sandra, I'm sure you wanna talk about some other things that we're doing at the school level. So first of all, like Naomi mentioned, that importance of having everyone in the school be involved with using restorative practices. That's why we do what we call wall-to-wall -wall implementation and training, where everyone in the building who interacts with students, including the bus drivers, nutrition, custodial clerks, are all trained and all go through your training and restorative practices. Um, we do a lot of emphasis on restorative language. Um, changing the way we communicate to students and and kind of expanding the definition a little bit to think of some practices that are are often used things like behavior specific praise opportunities to respond and thinking about those through a restorative lens that they're building that relationship with students that they're creating that positive culture and climate um, that helps students understand their behavior and its impact which is a restorative practice. Um, so that's a proactive piece. Circles are obviously a huge tool um, and very effective tool we found for students to build community and to respond to situations and circumstances. And that's one practice um, along with the language piece that we've really been able to translate well into the virtual world. Mm -hmm. We've done trainings with our, our teachers on how to hold virtual circles with their students we um, have even included training on how to do it with staff, so that administrators and PLCs and that sort of thing, that they're using the idea of using circles as well to build community, especially in a time like now when many adults are feeling very disconnected. Um, and because of that, we also started um, an opportunity for any JCPS staff member who would like to participate in a circle that's for them to just complete a Google form and we hold JCPS staff circles so that they can once a week participate in a circle that um, just again, gives them a chance to connect with other adults in a very non-threatening way, to share what's going on in their lives, to share how they're getting through this um, and just where they're at with that. Um, and we'll can, you tell me, can you tell me just a little bit about, um, maybe define for folks what a restorative circle is? So in a restorative circle, um, and it, it can be challenging um, virtually because everyone's screens look different in terms of 
where people are. So we've created templates on a PowerPoint where you list everyone's name and you just shift um, a little token around so that people know when their turn is next mm -hmm. um, to talk. Kind of use that as talking piece. And so what a talking piece is, is, is when someone has that talking piece, it's their turn to share their voice and we aren't interrupting them. We aren't um, judging or validating what they say. It's just their time to share. Um, and it can go back and forth that way. And so um, a facilitator will ask a question and depending on the type of circle you wanna do, sometimes it's everyone in the circle responds. Sometimes people volunteer to respond or they can pass. Um, and so it really does just provide an opportunity for people to have a voice, adults, students, whoever this is in the circle, to have a voice and talk about um, their thoughts, feelings on the topic. It can be a way to address a situation that has happened either in the classroom, um, in the community, um, say there's a fight or a school shooting or um, violence in the neighborhood. Um, a, there was a sub one day in in in-person brick and mortar school there was a sub one day and the teacher gets a report that the kids did not exactly behave the way that the teacher would want them to behave with a sub not that that ever happens um but so the teacher the next day might gather the kids together in a circle and say hey i was really disappointed in the report i got about your behavior yesterday now can we talk about that and use that as a circle. So the kids are getting to share what they saw, what they heard, what they observed, what they think they can do as a group to improve their behavior for the next time a sub comes in, a reminder of expectations. So that's where it kind of fits into PBIS as well. Um, and so it really does just build that community and that sense of belonging, whether it's proactive or responsive. Rhonda, that sounds a lot like um like what you're doing with your Isla project, really focusing on, I don't know, treating students like we would treat each other as grownups, like checking in with people and telling people the impact of their, of their behavior, giving others the opportunity to share. Can you talk a little bit about what the work that you're doing um, in yeah. that realm? Yes, I'd be happy to. Yeah, I mean, just to, to piggyback on what Sandra and Naomi and Keith had shared, the thing that I love about restorative practices is that this is not, this work is not rocket science, right? When we are looking at the foundation of education being positive, healthy, supportive relationships, it all makes sense. Because when we think about our time in schools or the students that we work with, we know that behavior is very much contextual and it's context specific. Like we have students that will work incredibly hard for one teacher and in that class and will be happy to do nothing in another teacher's class. And we know that the crux of that is most oftentimes the relationship they have with that teacher, mm -hmm. right? Teachers that set the bar high for them, encourage them to achieve that, are there to support them. Those are the teachers that students are showing up and working their hardest for. And so, when Sandra was talking about and when you had mentioned the continuum, responding to behavior truly is a huge continuum. And the work that we do with our ISLA project sp spends the majority of the time on all of those preventative pieces, universal relationship building, creating classroom environments when, where students know what's expected, where they are set up for success, 
as opposed to the alternative, which is exclusionary discipline, which is not a teaching strategy at all. There's nothing instructional about just being kicked out. And you're not given the opportunity to learn a new skill, whether it's an academic skill or a social skill, but you are expected to know what you are supposed to be doing. And anything to the contrary is seen as willful defiance. And we know right. that that's not true. We all make mistakes. And so we spend a ton of time on the prevention, on on really those great classroom management strategies of how do we respond to low level unwanted behavior? There are a million things that teachers do that we don't think about as interventions or strategies. They just think about it as classroom management, but yeah. all of it comes back to building a relationship where you feel like you can go up to a student and be like, hey, here's what I need you to be doing. Or you can partner them with another kid that's doing it well, or you can redirect them or you can support them without mm -hmm. just kicking them out. And I always like to say, and this is really a kind of the heart of our work, is that you cannot punish skills into a kid. You can't just keep bringing the hammer down until poof, one day they get it, right? We have to actually teach and restorative practices takes that approach and same with our, our project within that bigger umbrella of really building relationships and teaching the behaviors that we want to see, just like we would with our academic behaviors. Right. We would never kick a kid out for you know, saying two plus two equals seven. And that's one of the things I really think restorative practices also helps with is, um, to me, it's, it's just a great de-escalation tool. Because if I'm truly having a restorative interaction with a student who has misbehaved in some way, and I take the time to use the restorative questions, what happened, what were you thinking at the time, what have you thought about since, who has this impacted, and how, what do you need to do to make things right? If I take the time as a, as a teacher to do that, number one, that gives me time to calm down a little because if a kid is escalated, chances are I'm, I'm getting escalated as well. Right. Um, so it makes me take the time to do that. Number two, it's gonna deescalate the kid because suddenly you're actually asking them what's going on in their head and they're getting the chance to talk. And that doesn't often happen, unfortunately, in discipline situations. And so I really do think that that, that then sometimes becomes a tool um, because a lot of times what actually happened in the classroom is not a suspendable offense, but it escalates mm -hmm. and grows until suddenly it is a suspendable offense. The kid throws a chair, throws a desk, drops the F-bomb, whatever. But what they actually, what the incident started with should never have led to that. And so by taking the time to deescalate, you've now avoided a situation where you might potentially have to use exclusionary discipline. I just recently read an article um, in a journal that was, that did some interviews, it was interviews with like, I think it was 26 students who had been recently suspended during the year. And they, and every single one of them said that like, if they had just given me a chance to tell them what was happening. It never would have come to this. So I, I think, I think including that as part of your disciplinary process makes a lot of sense, you know? Well, you, um, you speak, you, you speak, ahead. so you hit on a point, I want to back up for a second because yeah. we, we spent a great deal of time and which is important about the continuum of practices, the application piece. Uh, I want to stress again the importance of how that relates to a sphere of influence starting from policy all the way down to the community, organization, interpersonal and intrapersonal relationships. Because at the mm -hmm. end of the day, 
what we're trying to do is create a power balance uh, through voice, uh, belonging and agency, uh, strengthen and improve relationships and connectedness uh, between the members of a school community, uh, and shift mental models around what it means to be uh, in a relationship uh, intergenerationally and what it means um, to uh, take a proactive preventative approach to building community. And if you think about the things I'm talking about, th these are all constructs that relate back to schools being an ecology, right? Schools being a social ecology by which, uh, and, you know, andro andragogy and pedagogy are really key components. So restorative practices, and this is important to stress, is a way by which we can create multi-models, multi multimodal approaches to be able to actually, uh, you know, influence well-being and flourishing for students. Uh, and that kind of gets at what's not happening and what the data is pointing to in terms of marginalized students being excluded, marginalized students being suspended at higher rates, marginalized students not feeling connected. And we know the importance of connectedness in terms of long-term impact uh, around well-being and, and flourishing for students. So I want to, you know, it's important to highlight uh, that, sure, it's about a set of practices, but those practices have to, are, are interventions and preventions by which we do something bigger, something larger, yes. something more impactful. Uh, and if we, we have to make sure that every practitioner understands the theory and how it relates directly to the practice that they're doing, so it is an ethos, a relational ethos that matters to them in those moments. Uh, and, and I know that we spent a lot of time with, in Jefferson County Public Schools in setting the stage for that. So, so the theory and the practice made sense to people when it came time to execute and apply. I think that's, in, that's incredibly important. And I think when, I've, when I start to think about these kinds of practices in general, I think about how suspensions have been around and exclusionary practices have been around for a long time. And so that means that they're working for someone. And in when I think about them, they're probably working for the adults in the building, right? And so now if we're trying to shift and say, like, we're asking you to do something different, we're asking you to do something that maybe doesn't feel like it's going to work for you, it might actually be harder. So can you talk a little bit about what you might say to some schools who are in a position where they would like to start doing these kinds of things, but may be actually running up against some folks that are not interested in hearing about an alternative, about changing start, that culture. I'll start and I'll pass it off, but, but I think it's important to understand um, some of the theoretical frameworks that support restorative practice, including Niels Christie's work around conflict as property, right? So conflict is something that we should own. Conflict is something that a system cannot fix. Uh, in conflict is the opportunity for growth and change. And what I mean by that is within conflict is the opportunity to develop skills. So take, for example, a conflict when done in a restorative way can help a student be more improve self-reflection, improve social awareness, improve listening skills, can help a staff member through reciprocity develop their own self-reflection, social awareness. So what I'm talking about here is conflict through restorative practice can create the conditions by which 21st century skills can be developed. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to need these skills actually in order to make it in a career pathway. They're going to need these skills to be on a college campus. They're going to need these skills in order to be in relationship in families and, and in their own relationships. And so when we, when we shift the lens quite a bit, we begin to see it differently and we begin to see the importance of the continuum of practices as a way to develop those inter-intrapersonal skills that are going to be needed for them to be successful.
Yeah. I would say, I, I couple, oh, that. sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, that, you know, the, the, jumping off of what Keith was saying, like, there are, and, and to your point, Megan, or to your question about, like, how do you bring adults on who, who may be resistant to change because they've been a part of a system in which suspensions and exclusion have been, have been so present for so long? I think that we all work with educators who are also on a very wide continuum of what matters to them, what impacts them. You know, and sometimes when we share just the research around the detrimental impacts of exclusion on student outcomes, on their livelihood, on their long-term goals, for some educators, that's, that's enough to get them to want to move away from exclusionary practices. Others, like Keith is saying, like being able to speak to how the development of those skills are not only going to serve kids for the rest of their lives, but it's going to improve the classroom for teachers. It's going to improve their relationships with students. It's going to improve the climate is also a really key component because I do recognize that we so often spend times looking at it from the student's perspective about the impact on them, but we miss oftentimes the opportunity talking about the impact on the teacher, the impact of suspending kids and what that does to their interactions, their relationships, their classroom climate. Um, and so for, for those educators, we have found that coming back to how critical it is to learn how to make amends and move on, just that simple skill, it seems so simple, but it will serve us for the rest of our lives. And we know that adults, just like kids, struggle with that. It's really hard mm -hmm. to make amends with somebody um, is a really important thing that we focus on. Uh, there was one other thing, but it has slipped my mind, so I'm, I'll pass it to Sandra. <laughs> I think adding on to what Rhonda said in terms of, of really addressing the needs of the teacher, um, we, we do a couple things in conversation often um, and even in our training. One is um, to talk about the difference between, between managing student behavior and actually changing student behavior. Those are two very different things and suspension and an exclusionary discipline manages student behavior more or less often less, but it, it can manage it, um, but it's not changing student behavior. And, and as educators, we should be trying to change and improve and help our kids grow. Um, and so having that be their focus, the idea of what's going to change the student's behavior. The other piece then kind of connected to that is really tying restorative practices to the Kentucky Code of Ethics. Um, we have a code of ethics for educators. It talks about building positive relationships with students. Um, it, it integrates a lot of these things. And so we very explicitly will point out in our training to teachers, here's how this connects to your code of ethics that you signed on to when you became a teacher in Kentucky. And so it is your ethical obligation to be a restorative person, not just to do restorative practices, but to be a restorative person in your interactions with students and with the adults in your building. Um, and, and so to really be putting it and framing it in that paradigm as well. And I'll add to that because I think so many times people forget to separate the deed from the doer. So one of my favorite quotes is, we tend to judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their behavior. And that really, to me, is the heart of what restorative practices is, is we have to stop just assuming that their behavior was their intent. 
when it's when it really wasn't. It was a product of whatever happened that moment, and it was a reaction. And mm -hmm. so the the whole crux of restorative practices is about those relationships. You knowing that child more to know that that was not their intention and giving them a second chance and having grace. And I think so many times we don't know how to give kids grace. We expect that as adults, we've got to give that to kids too. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, so talking a little bit about um, some of these practices that we've we've just been talking about and we've talked about some of the benefits, but maybe you guys, uh, maybe um, Sandra and Naomi, you all are even Rhonda and Keith for that matter, if you have um, some specific examples of a change that you saw or an impact that you saw in a specific student or in a school once they started implementing these practices, like what was a shift that you saw that was really to the benefit of everyone? I will say um, I haven't been able to see a whole lot in terms of the virtual yet. And our school has, our, our district has been virtual since March. So we have not yet at all gone back to in-person. Mm -hmm. um, but we are hearing a lot of stories of people using virtual circles, particularly at the beginning of the year, because um, these teachers are, are facing a brand new set of students that they've never met before and having to try and build those relationships first time virtually, which is such a challenge. Um, and so they're really using those circles to help facilitate that. Um, there aren't quite as many behavior problems virtually, which is nice. So it's giving teachers a little bit of a break. Um, but in, in our schools that have done it in person, um, in the brick and mortar schools, we have 30 schools right now that are implementing. Um, we see the basics, you know, your decrease in suspensions, referrals, um, in-school suspensions, those sort of things. Um, definite decreases in recidivism of suspensions. Um, we also have seen a decrease in the number of days administrators are suspending. So if they're suspending, um, where in the past it might've been a four or five day suspension, it's a one day suspension. So they're, starting to shift that mindset. Um, but what's really cool is that kids are starting to see it as an opportunity for them to address problems and situations that they're seeing. We'll have students approaching teachers saying, hey, this just happened, can we circle up? We need to talk about this. Um, and that's when I think we really see the change is when it's, it's becoming habit, um, like Rhonda was saying, that, that it's become now a skill that they're using. And some of our schools have been really intentional in, in starting to teach restorative practices to their students um, in a weekly basis and advisory periods and things like that. Um, so that's been really exciting to see kids using it at home with siblings and that sort of thing. I may add to that from a, oh, go ahead, Naomi, go continue. I was just going to do a quick story about um, when we first started implementing. Um, we trained, as Keith mentioned, um, our district team first, and we spent a year doing a whole lot of 
preparation. We got a lot of pushback from the community because they wanted restorative practices implemented right now because it's going to fix everything. But what we found was doing that year of uh, preparatory work uh, really helped us to understand it and give us credibility as as a department and even um, just as as a school district. So one great story that uh, one of the principals says talks about when she first learned because we had three principals that were our initial implementers who were also a part of that training was that she was sitting in uh, a circle um, getting trained and she heard two people introduce themselves. And she thought that they were the new teachers, you know, like somebody introducing themselves to the, to a new teacher. No, it was a veteran teacher and the, the cafeteria nutrition service worker who had been there for years, but they never had a connection. And so I, I tend to talk about how it builds community, not just with students, but with adults, because I think when you have that community with adults, you're going to, it trickles down to the students and it greatly affects the students because people then feel more connected to the work. And so Keith, I'll let you talk. Yeah, I was just gonna say that's pretty, pretty consistent with what we're seeing around the country uh, in other school districts, large and small, uh, rural, large and uh, urban school districts as well. And um, it, it, um, it speaks to um, the importance of, of this logic around implementing restorative practices, uh, around what it means to do things with fidelity, right? And so there's a couple of couple of things, indicators uh, uh, that are present in the stories that Naomi and Sandra and Rhonda are sharing. And some of those indicators are we want to take a close look at when we do um, teach restorative practices from a professional development standpoint and a coaching standpoint, we're looking at generating some level of buy-in, some level of acceptance and uh, into the practice, um, co-opting that into the end, you know, into using it in a pedagogical way. The other piece is really making sure that uh, the way that the, the restored practice is designed is implemented in the way it's designed. And, and Naomi's talking about that. So when we took our time at Jefferson County Public Schools, we wanted to make sure that the right people had the right training, had the mm -hmm. right support in order to actually do it the way it was designed. And I can't stress that enough because programs and models get judged on how well they're implemented. Um, also, we're looking at those things are then related to, uh, you know, so the cont continuum of support and services is related to short, medium, and long-term outcomes. So when we're looking at long-term outcomes over a number of years, and that relates to dose, right? So how intense the dose is and how that's working across an MTSS framework, which you're all familiar with, obviously. But what does it mean when you have a higher dose for certain groups of people? And what are the long-term outcomes you're looking at? So I would put long-term outcomes as, sustainable reduction of suspensions, improvement in climate and culture, those things that are that relate and correlate to uh, medium outcomes, which consist of, and I'd love to hear Sandra and Naomi and Rhonda speak about this, but medium outcomes that have to do with engagement between staff and students, engagement with families, uh, and, and in seeing the school as a workplace. So engagement among colleagues and backing out to the short-term outcomes, which have to do with, you know, what are the learning outcomes that they receive in professional development and coaching that reinforce that, right? So I say, I'll take a minute to say all that because I, I want folks to understand there is a logical design and approach to this work. And there are outcomes that we're looking at and can be measured, particularly when you align that with 
a framework or a practice like PBIS. It's even reinforced to be even stronger, to be honest with you. And that data component, which we haven't talked a lot, is very, very, very key. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can't agree enough. Um, I wanted to share a, a story about something that we do in our research that kind of speaks to both the buy-in and the outcomes piece, and they all come back to student voice. So with, with our project, what we do every year is we do a, a focus group with students and we typically do it with eighth grade students and it's a co collective mix of students and we want to know globally, you know, what are the things that, that educators and your fellow students do that make the classroom a really welcoming and supportive place? And then what are things that make it not welcoming and not supportive? Mm -hmm. Or what are things that happen that impact your desire to come back? And what we found was not only are students so ready to share in the middle schools that we've done this with, because we typically do it with eighth graders, but sharing those quotes of what students said back to their teachers was one of the biggest focal points for buy-in because educators were able to hear from their students that they weren't asking for much. They were saying classrooms that, make, that are places they wanna go every day these two students were chomping at the bits to tell us about this teacher who every Monday allows students 15 minutes to share about what they did over the weekend. Or another one talked about a teacher that greets everyone every day when they come in. And the big thing that came about from middle schoolers across these schools was the thing that makes them not want to come back to class is being called out and embarrassed in front of their peers. And it boils down to that humanity piece that I wouldn't want that to happen to me in front of my colleagues. And students were saying the same thing, that if I do something, I want the response from the teacher to be discreet. I want it to be between the two of us because if they called me out in front of everybody and embarrassed me, it's gonna make me not wanna come back. And educators were so taken by what the students had said. This one kid made such an impact because in his quote that we shared out, he was talking about, he had a teacher where in class, he said, he said a naughty word. He said a naughty word in class and the teacher said, hey, can we have a minute? And they stepped outside to speak. And he said, the teacher said to him, you know, look, in my free time, I say words like that too. But in here, we can't talk like that, okay? And it was that simple. And kids kept coming back to teachers who admit to being human themselves as being one of the things that is such an important piece and feeling connected to a class. And I asked him, I said, so after that, did you have any other issues in that class? He said, no, not at all for the rest of the year. And it was that simple, just a teacher saying, look, I'm human, but in this context, we just can't say things like that. And so being able to share student voice back out with staff points to both the value of this work and the things that kids need to make school a place that they feel connected. Can I add to that a little bit, Rhonda? Please. I love that story um, that Rhonda said. Um, I'm gonna add Megan. Uh, to the story that Rhonda said, let me clarify that. Um, but that student voice piece um, is huge, especially um, in a classroom, because so many times we have that either the helpless hand raiser um, or those folks that think that they have every answer, and you have some of those students that go to the background, and those are the kids that can get lost. And with restorative circles, um, when, we could, when we could go out and actually observe them, when kids had the opportunity to choose to have a voice, sometimes they chose not to, but that was their choice. They were a part of the community. And that's really big for student voice. 
because I can choose to respond or I can choose not to respond, but at least I feel like I'm a part of the community. And I would add that just your comment, Rhonda, about it's not rocket science. Um, it, it isn't. I mean, none of these things are all that challenging to do. And in fact, many good teachers already do them. They don't know the name of it. They don't know the theory behind it, but they do those practices. And, and in the training, um, in IRP's training, they talk about implicit practice and explicit practice. And so that's one of the important pieces of the training is helping teachers take that implicit practice of giving students voice and making it explicit and intentional. And I would say that's why it's called restorative practices because you have to keep practicing it and being explicit and being intentional with it until it becomes habit because we all know that when we're stressed, we revert to what's habit. And so until these practices are habit, they won't be done as intentionally or with fidelity in the classrooms. I just want to add, I mean, so, so we, we see, I mean, there's plenty of evidence, there's anecdotal stories, there's the stories you've heard here. Uh, we see that restorative practices is, is more than just a promising, uh, you know, promising uh, based practice. I mean, there's tons of evidence now, including the most recent report that just came out of Baltimore City Public Schools on the success of restorative practices and the RAND study and the studies, the early studies and findings out of Jefferson County Public Schools, uh, you know, and in the literary reviews that have been done around the country on its effectiveness. Uh, however, I still think there's a challenge and an opportunity here. Mm -hmm. And the challenge and the opportunity is that it cannot just live uh, alone at a, a semi-explicit level, meaning just relationships and power balance, which are important, and mental models I've talked about earlier. When we do things with students and families as, as uh, members of a community, of a school community, there has to be some shared decision-making power at the structural levels. And this is where the change in sustainability really happens. And when I talk about those structural levels, I'm talking about you know, reinforcing policy. So if you have a policy that supports this social disciplinary approach and you're moving away from a punitive approach, then making sure that uh, that policy is sustained and supported all the way through the practice, making sure resources are allocated appropriately, uh, and making sure that, you know, time uh, is devoted to, to, to practitioners, to leaders, to be able to, to demonstrate. And Sandra talked about this, like making sure that st the strategic plans at the district level, all the way up to the Board of Eds, are on board and supporting this, because those structures need to reinforce these practices. And if there is a disconnect in that, and there really is a problem. You're asking to take this bottom-up approach, which really, really is challenging. You're asking basically fish to swim upstream, and that's really hard. And so there has to be a top-down, bottom-up approach uh, in a dynamic in such a way that students and families and staff are actually together informing what are the best policies, what are the best practices, and how can resources be allocated, allocated to support not only restorative practices, but other practices in a multimodal way. Um, extremely important. We want climate, sustainable climate and culture change. And I think too, going back to what Sandra was saying about how these are things that teachers are already doing. They're already doing these in small ways um, and maybe not so um, structured and organized ways. They're just doing them in their classroom anyway. And I think the, the real key too is um, like you were saying, Keith, just 
uh, finding a way to embed this within the things that the school has committed to and um, and also working to change the the overall culture and the building where um, these kinds of practices are not just afforded to some kids they're afforded to all kids um, and um, and so that you're you're helping to you're helping people to understand those spots where they may have done this for for one student in their class or a couple of students in their class, but that they need to they need to work on on affording all students these same opportunities. You guys, we've we've done these we've done this. It's, I mean, I don't know. We've talked a lot. We've talked all around it. We've talked about about the structures that need to be in place. We've talked about some of the ways that you all have um, found to adapt the. The restorative practices within your district um, to match your current distance learning models. Um, we've talked about the the benefits that are afforded not just to students but to but to teachers and families and communities in general, um, and and that if we want to if we want this to we, we if we want our students to be full complete human beings that go out in the world and find success outside of school, that we actually do need to teach them some of these behaviors and interpersonal skills the same way that we would teach them about academics. So I really appreciate all of you guys taking the time to talk to us and, and the folks that are listening all about the work that you all are doing to support kids all over the country. If there's anything more that you'd like to say, now is a good time. Where, can, where do you recommend that folks go to start to start learning a little bit more about the work that you all are doing. I'll start with just, you know, you can, you can certainly go to IRP's website uh, if you want recommendations, uh, you know, uh, reports that have been done, but it's iirp.edu. Um, and also uh, I'll point out uh, not only the graduate coursework, but also um, looking at restorative practices from a community health standpoint, which we, you know, talked a little bit about, but what that means to look at other frameworks, Healthy People 2020, uh, and how restorative practice is influencing and intersects with those frameworks as well. So, irp.edu. Thanks. Um, and I don't know Jefferson County's email, uh, website address offhand, maybe <laughs> Naomi does, but. Um, we'll put it up right here on the screen. <laughs> it's actually. It's www.jefferson.kyschools.us. If you just type in restorative practices, you can find um, some of our documents um, and some of our research on our website because we actually upload our, some of our data there. That's awesome. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the items on there is our um, JCPS restorative practices implementation guide that really goes into the alignment with PBIS and what that looks like. It has some school-based documents and exemplars as tools. Um, so it's, it's just a really great guide for um, other districts to use. And I know that many of your listeners may know this, but on pbis.org, there's a nice section of tools related to implementing equity-based work. And one specific one tied to what Keith had talked about, about policy work, is there is a policy guide up on pbis.org, both for district policies and then what those practices, what practices within the schools those policies relate to, to get schools away from um, discipline policies that are steeped in zero tolerance and really ineffective exclusionary discipline. So how, how we develop 
policies that embed these components of restorative practices, instructional alternatives, building relationships, um, you can find on pbis.org. And I would also add then that um, on Jefferson County's website, our student support and behavior intervention handbook, what's usually called the code of conduct. Mm -hmm. We've been working really hard over the past four years or so as we've been doing this work to every time we revise it, integrate more um, restorative pieces into that to demonstrate to schools what it looks like as part of the continuum of responses. Um, so that's another good document to look at in terms of how we've integrated it into our district-wide policy of behavior. Well, Sandra, Keith, Naomi, Rhonda, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate y'all taking the time and uh, we'll catch you guys soon.